Well, before we dig into our passage this morning, uh, you'll notice on your inside of your notice sheets there are tearaway blue slips, uh, which you can fill in with details about yourself, but it's also an opportunity to ask questions about what's been said uh, in the talk. Every so often we get one put in the uh, box on the welcome desk with some questions. Last week was particularly controversial, so we had two questions uh, last week, so I just want to spend a couple of minutes answering those before we dig into our, our passage this week. So last week we were looking at Romans 14, looking at issues that Christians uh, disagree about. And we said we want to be firm on the stuff that we uh, need to be firm on, but we want to be flexible on the stuff that we can be flexible on. And the question was asked, what is the irreducible minimum of Christian belief on which no compromise is possible? What's the irreducible minimum? Well, that's one of those tricky questions, isn't it? If we could all agree on that, in one sense there'd be no uh, problem. But actually part of the problem is that actually over time it's been harder and harder to get a statement that all the people who uh, are trusting in Jesus can agree with and uh, the people who don't can't agree with. So it's, for example, if you've got a phrase like Jesus was raised from the dead, you think, yeah, that's dead simply, that, that's uh, irreducible. Except that then a few hundred years ago people started saying that Jesus had raised spiritually from the dead, not physically. So we had to add in the word physically raised from the dead. So these sort of doctrines actually, these sort of statements actually keep adapting over time. And statements like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they were actually adaptations of previous things that had gone before to try and get that balance of what was essential and what wasn't. So if you want a good guide, um, I don't think there's a absolute, I don't think there's a sort of set one, but it's good to look at different ones where there are organisations that work with believers that are of different opinions on different things. So uh, things like the uh, FIEC Statement of Faith, or the Doctrinal Basis of UCCF, the Christian, Mo- uh, Christian Unions Movement, a good mission agency like OM or EMF or SIM or any of, of those. Um, we use the FIEC Statement of Faith as a church, and then we have our own doctrinal distinctives, which is where we stand on particular issues like sovereignty of God, baptism, the Holy Spirit, ministry. As a church, we allow anybody who puts their trust in Jesus and agrees on the statement of faith, sort of more essentials, to become a formal member. They don't have to agree with the distinctives, but they have to understand uh, that that is where the church stands on them and not seek to undermine them. For me, that gets the balance between the two. There are some things which we're saying they are um, irreducible, there are things that we can't move on, but there are things that we can be flexible on and still be uh, brothers and sisters together and get along together in that. So that's where I'll put you. If you want to come back on that, then feel free to talk to me afterwards or uh, fill in another blue slip. The other question was, how would you manage a situation where you are convinced uh, something is a disputable matter and don't want to bat on about it? That was one of our points. Keep your faith to yourself. It said, keep your belief to yourself. But a friend keeps wanting to talk or debate it with you. What do you do? I think that's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think it depends on the attitude of your friend are they trying to cause problems? Are they trying to stir division? So I mentioned someone last time who always used to talk about a certain issue, and he really was trying to stir things. He liked getting into arguments, and uh, often made people cry and didn't even notice. That, that's, that's a clue that these things are, are not great. Um, but we're told in Titus 3, 9, uh, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. 
is self-condemned. So if somebody really is just trying to stir up trouble, actually the Bible would say, stay away from that kind of person. But it might be that they're actually genuinely concerned about that problem. It might be something that's really on their mind. They might be genuinely concerned if they think that it's an essential, that they're trying to help you. And in that case, I'll give you the advice that I gave last week, which is go back to the Bible. Look at the Bible with them. Is there something there that's clear and unambiguous that will point you to the answer? And if that still doesn't help, but that's the, that's the big one, if that still doesn't help, uh, maybe if you look into church history, are there good people through church history who have disagreed on this issue that your friend has? Would they accept them as a believer? Um, you don't want to make something essential that means that you have to kick out uh, these good people from history, would you? So that's, that's where I go with that. Again, if you've got any more questions on that, then, then do come back to me. Let's pray as we come to this word. Father, well, thank you for the gift of your word, Father. Thank you for the gift of each other. Help us this morning as we look into your word together uh, to understand what you are saying, Father. Pray that you would help us and change us, change our minds, our attitudes this morning. And Father, make us more like the Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Are churches supposed to be inward-looking or outward-looking? Should they mainly be concerned about what happens within their community in here or in the community out there? The world out there or the world in here? Now it would be tempting to think after last week's passage that the focus is inward to each other. We have phrases like this, welcome one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. All sounds very inward, doesn't it? And there is that focus in scripture, and indeed our passage this morning begins with a for, a because. It's a reason to welcome people uh, inside the church. It is uh, a reason to welcome people uh, within the, the, the four walls, if you like, uh, on a Sunday morning. But it starts a transition from the inward to the outward. And uh, when we say outward, I'm not just talking about the church to next door. Uh, shout out to Physiologic and Endless Hair Supplies, that's what we've got next door. But it's going further than that, isn't it? It's going to the ends of the earth. There is so much to do within church and with our own locality that it's easy for our vision to become very narrow, very provincial, very confined. There's so much need nearby, and it can seem so insurmountable that actually we forget our God is bigger than uh, our needs nearby, but even bigger than further on. You know, God is not just the God of Otley or the God of Ilkley. Imagine Ilkley's God would be basically the same as Otley's God, but the offerings would be twice as expensive. Uh, that's how it works. But God is not even just the God of Yorkshire, though people have commented that this is his home county. He's the God of the nations. He's the God who rules the world from pole to pole. The God of nations, of all kingdoms, of all people groups, even Lancastrians over the border. And Paul wants to remind them of this at the end of his letter. The gospel is far bigger than our own locality or the people who look and think like us. So he reminds them first to love and welcome one another in the church because of God's gospel. But then also that has implications for people who are coming into the church from outside. God's gospel is meant to reach all sorts of people outside the church and bring them in. So in other words, our first point this morning is God's vision for the gospel is global. 
and was always going to be. Well, the vision for the gospel is global and always was going to be. Have a look with me at verse at 7. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For, I tell you, that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There's a teaching at some time that gets some traction in certain parts of the evangelical world, that the gospel going to the nations is some sort of unforeseen twist. That the gospel going to the Gentiles was not prophesied in scripture and only happened because the Jews rejected their Messiah. They say that we live in a prophetic blind spot, a giant aside in history until the Jews accept their Messiah. What that means then actually is that the church as we know it, the church of all nations, is not the culmination of the promises of scripture, but a sort of cul-de-sac, a sort of dead end. Once this age is over, God will go, in, go back to primarily being interested in just one people, the Jews. Is that what we see here in our passage? No, it isn't. By no means, I think Paul would say. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. In other words, God came to the Jews as he said he would. Salvation is from them. And he did so to fulfil his promises to the patriarchs. That's right. But also, so the Gentiles would glorify God too. And after all, that was part of his promises to the patriarchs, wasn't it? Genesis 12, verse 3, you'll see on the back of your notice sheets. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham. Going to the nations was always God's plan. Blessing through Abraham and his offspring. His offspring, Paul tells us in Romans, uh, sorry, Galatians 3, is Christ. It was always God's plan to bring blessing and salvation to the nations through Christ. And as if to hammer that home in the verses that follow, Paul gives us four quotations from the Old Testament to show us that that was always the plan. And he gives us there one from each section of the Hebrew Bible. He gives us in verse 9, one from the former prophets, what we call the historical books. Uh, from the law in verse 10, the first five books of the Bible. From the writings in verse 11, from the Psalms. And then from the latter prophets in verse 12, the prophets as we call them. What he's showing us there is that all of Old Testament scripture pointed to the fact that this was coming. That the nations would join in worshipping Christ. That it was not just the hope of Israel, but actually it's the hope of the nations. Christ the Messiah is not the exclusive property of the Jews. He belongs to the Gentiles too. And that means that the Gentiles will rejoice, verse 10, with his people. Churches are to be mixed congregations of all sorts, Jew and Gentile. And they're to welcome one another, as we were seeing last week. It's looking back to that verse 7 where they're to welcome one another, one another because of this. Welcome one another because God has welcomed you both. There should be peace between warring sides in the church since Christ has welcomed both sides. Not just Jews, all nations. All nations should be welcome at churches, shouldn't they? There should be no ethnic divide in the church. 
There should not be one church for his people and another uh, one group of people and one for another. Sometimes that might be helpful as a temporary measure if uh, people don't speak the language, for example, for practical purposes. But the goal should be one church made up of all nations. And it should be as ethnically diverse as the area around it. And it should be a place of peace and joy, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so in the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We're to come together empowered by the Holy Spirit, welcoming one another and producing hope. Hope is that delayed certainty of what is to come. It's not sort of, I wish it would stop raining, I hope it stops raining. I do hope it stops raining. <laughs> but it's a delayed certainty. It's something that will happen. The church is a picture of that hope, in a way, as we see the nations come together. It foreshadows that day when people from every tongue, tribe and nation will gather together around the throne of Christ in glory. Where the Jew welcomes and loves the Gentile, and the Gentile welcomes and loves the Jew. Where ethnic and political and historical differences are put aside, and they worship God together. Do you know, I'm sure this morning that near the border in Ukraine this morning, there'll be churches where there are Ukrainians and Russians praising the Lord together. That'll probably be the only place that will be happening in that part of the country. And I know that it's true in Israel, there are Palestinians and Jews who worship together the one true God. And that is God's vision for the church in Rome here. Divisions laid aside, striving for peace and joy together. And indeed, that's what God designs for all churches, isn't it? Laying aside our differences, welcoming one another, that the gospel may go to all peoples. But it's more than that, isn't it? Paul knows God's gospel vision for the nations, for all the people. And it's affected Paul's life profoundly, hasn't it? It's affected his own vision of his own life. It's caused him not just to work on accepting other nations at home, but reaching other nations abroad. And so our second point, that's Paul's vision. Paul's vision for the gospel, Paul's vision for the gospel, is global. Have a look at verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of, uh, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul reminds the Romans of his role as apostle to the Gentiles. God was told by God, uh, sorry, Paul was told by God at his conversion that he was to be sent to the Gentiles. There's agreement with Peter, James and John in the book of Galatians that Paul should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. 
And Paul takes this role very seriously. He's writing to them, the Romans, the centre of the Gentile world, to preach to them the fundamental truths of the gospel. And notice here, it's not because he doesn't think they don't know it. Actually, he says that they're actually able to teach one another. Actually, what he's doing here is reminding them of these spiritual truths. It's good to be reminded of these things, as we'll see next, next week. But Paul is writing to them because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he sees himself in the role of a priest, presenting the Gentiles as an offering to God. Working hard that the Gentiles might be an acceptable, worthy offering to God. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit, holy and pleasing to God. He wants them to live lives spotless and blemishless as, blemishless as possible. In other words, that they would be the best offering that they can be. But it's not that Paul wants to boast. He doesn't take pride in his work. He's worked hard to bring the Gentiles to faith and to help them grow in holiness. But it's not Paul's work, is it? Actually, it's Christ's. Do you notice that? Verse 18, but I will venture to speak of, uh, not venture to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me. Actually, it's Christ at work in the Gentiles. Christ at work changing them. He's used the Apostle Paul here to do this for his own glory. Granting him the words to speak. Enable him to do the deeds to live a godly life. Working miracles through Paul so that even his handkerchief was able to heal people. But most of all through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Turning people's lives around. Raising them from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Lots of people saw the miracles, didn't they, that Paul did? Lots of people heard the words and they saw the deeds. But only those in whom the Spirit worked in power were brought to faith in Christ. And that's what's been happening as the Gospel's gone out. God has been working in all the major cities in the area through Paul the Apostle, from Jerusalem in the southwest, all the way up to Illyricum up in the north, probably what we call Croatia uh, nowadays. Paul's ministry of the gospel has spread across nearly the whole of the Greek-speaking world. There are little communities of the gospel in all the major centres in the area. And now they are taking the gospel to the people around them, to the surrounding towns and villages. Paul's work on the east side of the Mediterranean is done, he says. He's laid a solid foundation for the gospel there. Even the Romans, he's confident, are self-sufficient enough that they can teach one another. They can just get on with it. And he's not even been there yet. So now Paul has set his vision beyond those places, to places that have never heard of Jesus at all. He's a man who, in terms of building, excels in foundations. That's what he sees himself as doing. And his plan now is to go to a place where they don't have any foundations. Where the name of Jesus has not even been heard of. Where possibly there weren't even synagogues in that area. He would be starting completely from scratch. The quote that he gives here to talk about that mission is Isaiah 52. And it's the beginning of one of the most famous passages about the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. The one that speaks about a suffering servant. But in Isaiah 52 it speaks of him sprinkling the nations. Now when that word is used in the Bible it's nearly always used of blood in the Old Testament. 
It's what a priest would do with the blood on the altar. It's what was done to the priest to anoint them in Leviticus and Exodus. And here, in one of the most famous passages about Jesus, who was pierced for our transgressions, even there, it talks about the nations being sprinkled by him. The one they'd never even heard of, one that they hadn't had all these messages before about, would come and save them. So Paul wants to bring that to other parts of the world. The whole of Turkey, Greece and Palestine at that point was not enough for Paul. Paul had a truly global vision for the gospel. But, we say it's Paul's vision. He's not going to do it alone. Paul very, very rarely works alone in the Bible. Actually, the Christians in Rome have a part to play too. And that's what we see in our last point. Our vision for the gospel should be global. Our vision for the gospel should be global. Let me read to you verses 22 down to 33. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave, by Spain, uh, leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come to you in the fullness of blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable for the saints, so that by God's will I may be able to come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul plans to go to Spain. Not on holiday, I know that's often how we think of Spain. But Spain here means the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, including Portugal. At this point, it had only recently been conquered and subdued by the Romans. And really, for the Jews, Spain represented the ends of the earth. It was the edge of the known world. In the Old Testament, it carried similar notions. It was called Tarshish. And if you remember, it's the place where Jonah thinks he might actually stand a chance of getting away from God when he goes in his ship. It's the edge of the world, as far as you can get to the west, as far as they knew. And Paul wants to go there. His work in the eastern Mediterranean is complete. There are enough believers there now to evangelise what's left. But in Spain, well, seemingly no one's taking the gospel to Spain. They didn't even really have a significant Jewish population until after AD 70, when the Jews were expelled from their homeland. Roman Catholic tradition has it the Apostle James, brother of John, took the gospel to Spain. But that's almost certainly untrue. He's martyred in Jerusalem in Acts 12, seemingly before the apostles really even left Jerusalem. This is uh, before Paul even begins his missionary journeys. And Peter only grasps the gospel for the Gentiles in the chapters, the two chapters before. So I think it's a bit of a stretch that the apostle James grasps the gospels for the Gentiles, goes to Gentile Spain, and makes it back before chapter 12 to be martyred. Didn't stop the Spaniards, though, from naming uh, Santiago in the northwest of Spain after him, and claiming that his bones are there. 
But uh, there you go. Anyway, Paul really will not be building on anyone else's foundations. That's the point. He really will be going where no one has gone before. Paul, though, is not going by himself. Paul is not a one-man band. Paul knows the power of partnership in the gospel. Paul isn't going to go direct to Spain. He plans to travel via Rome after staying there a while. And he wants their partnership and support in the mission. That's one of the reasons why he's writing to them. He wants their support in two ways. He wants them to help him on his journey. That's what he says there. The word there is pro-pempo. And really it means to provide what's necessary for a journey. So in Titus 3.13, Paul writes, Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. That's really what he's got in mind. And he's expecting the same from the Romans. I should be able to make it to Rome, says Paul, but then perhaps you can help me make it to Spain. He probably has in mind food and supplies, and perhaps his fare on the boat. He expects financial support from them in that sense. He wants them to meet his material needs so that he can take the gospel somewhere else. And I don't think it's coincidence that Paul then goes on to talk about the financial aid given by the Greek Christians of Macedonia and Achaia. And the way that they have been spiritually blessed by uh, the gospel, and therefore they should reciprocate financially. He's talking about their mutual partnership in the gospel of giving and receiving. It's also a case in point for what Paul's been talking about with the Gentiles welcoming the Jews, and vice versa. Here is the majority Gentile congregations helping the majority Jewish congregations with financial aid when they're in need. He's not concerned, though, uh, just that the Gentiles give, notice, but that the Jews receive. That's sometimes the problem, isn't it? The Gentiles are willing to give, but are the Jews willing to receive? Will they accept a gift from a bunch of Greek Gentiles? Or will they reject the offer of help? Will they accept it from Paul? the former persecutor of the church. Actually, as much as they need to give, the other side needs to receive. Partnership is not a one-way street. It's about offering help, but it's also about receiving help as well. But Paul expects them to support this mission financially. That's what he's talking about, to provide for him and all that he needs to get to Spain. But Paul also wants them to support the mission in prayer. That's what he talks about from Verses 30 to 32. He wants them to pray. Paul is not above asking them to pray to God on his behalf. Some of us, I think, think sometimes that we're holier than Paul because we don't ask for prayer. We think we just get by. We don't think other people should pray for us. We don't think it's worth it. But Paul knows the value of prayer support. Paul is not above asking other people to pray for him. What he wants them to do is strive together in prayer. It's quite a strong word. One translation puts it, to be a companion at arms with me in prayer. It's the idea of battle, of, of striving, of struggling. This is to be their contribution to the mission, to the work of the gospel in the wider world. To pray. And Paul's requests are quite specific, aren't they? He's not just sort of, oh, pray for the work in Spain. There we go. Actually, he asked that they pray for the Christians in Jerusalem, first of all, that they would accept the gift that is collected from the church in Greece and beyond. 
And from what we read in Acts, that prayer was answered. They did. Partnership in action. And secondly, in order to get there, that he would be delivered from unbelievers in Jerusalem. Now the word there to be delivered is actually quite rare in the Bible. It's sort of been swept away, carried away from. Which if you think about it, is exactly what happened actually in the book of Acts. He was swept away all the way to Rome eventually, uh, as he was taken prisoner. He was taken as a prisoner after allegations that he'd taken a Gentile into the innermost parts of the temple with him. He appealed for his case to be heard by Caesar, which as a Roman citizen he had the right to do. And the Roman authorities arranged his trip to Rome. So probably wasn't quite what he was expecting. He came to Rome as a prisoner, but if you read it, he still came with joy. God kept him all the way, didn't he? And I bet he was refreshed by their company, especially after shipwrecks and all sorts of things that had happened on the way. Their prayers were answered, actually. He was swept away uh, from the unbelievers there, just not quite in the way he might have expected. But don't you often find that is the case with answers to prayer? Often it's not the way that we expect, is it? Now, unfortunately, we don't know for definite if Paul ever got to Spain. The next time we meet him in the Bible, he's back in Rome a second time facing imminent execution. But, I looked this up this week, the best evidence that we have is that Paul probably did make it to Spain. Clement of Rome, writing only uh, about 60 years later, not even that, sorry, about uh, 50 years later, tells us that Paul went to the farthest bounds of the West, that would be Spain. He also mentions that the Roman Christians uh, did help Paul at various times. So it would seem that the, this did happen, that the Roman Christians did help Paul on his way, that he got to fulfil his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ had never been named. Certainly hope he did. I really hope he did. But whether he did or not, it's a reminder to us that even if we're not individually called to the ends of the earth, we can still be involved with global mission. I mean, it might be that some of us here this morning are called to different parts of the world. But for many of us, it would be supporting the work in other ways. And all of us should be involved in global mission. As I said at the beginning, it's really easy to get up caught up in all the work that we have to do around here. But it's right that we play our part in bringing the gospel to the furthest reaches of the earth. That we continue that mission that Paul was on so many years ago to see the gospel of Jesus uh, and Jesus named everywhere. That doesn't mean that we can make everybody Christians. That's the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts. But it does mean that we should aim to see little mission outposts in every corner of the world. That like Paul, we want to see thriving churches in all the major centres of the world, reaching out to the areas around them. And we want to be doing that here in Otley, don't we? It would be great, wouldn't it, to see life groups in Menston, in Burley, in Ilkley, in Poole, in Bramhope, in North Bradford, in Clifton, in Timble, in Leafley. We want to be reaching out to the areas around us. We should have a local vision. But we should also have a global vision at the same time, even if we can't go ourselves. We can support it financially as the Romans uh, were to do as well. It's wonderful for us as a church in our little part of West Yorkshire to be able to be involved in a work that reaches to uh, the outer reaches of Southeast Asia, to our mission partners, to the suburbs of Paris, to the environs of Plekin. <laughs> 
Well, that last one doesn't sound so exciting, does it? But there aren't so many mission agencies that support work in former mill towns, are there? But in giving, we can support mission to the ends of the earth. As a church, we aim to give away around 10% of our income as a church to other works. We support the Macs, who have been doing work for many years in a rather close country in Southeast Asia. This is being recorded, so I'm not going to mention too much. We support the Delahoyds, working in one of the suburbs in Paris. We support Open Doors, providing support to Christians facing persecution in other lands. I think that's a bit like Paul's mission at Fund, taking care where it's needed. We support the FIEC. That's not so much overseas, but it is supporting churches and church planting across the UK. From Garthpool Evangelical Church in the Shetland Islands, down to Kenne Bay Evangelical Church on the island of Jersey. Isn't that amazing to be able to be involved in work that's spread that far? And we also support the Thompsons in the Spen Valley and Caring for Life just down the road. Let's not do down supporting works in that way. One of our distinctives as a church is that we believe every believer is a missionary where they are, but that some are sent to the ends of the earth. Not everybody is sent there, but we can still be involved with the mission by giving financially. And I know that there are plenty of people who give above and beyond what the church gives uh, to those folk and to other works as well. We can support it financially, and we can support it in prayer too, both as individuals and as a group. I'm going to send around this week in the weekly email details of how you can get prayer points for our mission partners. I haven't done that in a while, so that you can get on their uh, lists and and find out how you can pray specifically, like Paul asked them to do. It's also been great to have our monthly prayer and pizza on a Sunday evening, where we've every time had a focus on another country or a mission partner. It's been great to pray for Turkey at one of those times, uh, close to Nadan Myrtle's heart and James and Naomi's heart as well. And we've got another Turkish speaker here this morning. Uh, it seems like God's pointing us in that direction. It's been great to pray for Jordan, where Vernon is at the moment. He's been coming on a Sunday evening. It's a reminder, isn't it, that our prayer should be bigger than our local area, because we pray to a big God, don't we? It's, it's not too much to pray about things happening on the other side of the world. John Stott once visited a small church on holiday. This is what he observed. He said, we came to the pastoral prayer. It was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Secondly, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth that she might have a safe delivery. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick. And then it was over. That's all there was. I said to myself, it's a village church with a village God. We don't have a village God, do we? We can pray about bigger things. We can pray more about more than just happens within our church, more than just happens outside our church. Actually, we can pray about anything, anywhere in the world. Paul got Christians praying for him everywhere because he knew his mission was big, but he knew his God was bigger. So we can pray for world, uh, world mission and we can pray big. Pray inward? Yes. Amen. But let's pray outward too. God has a global vision for the gospel. Global vision. Uh, Paul had a global vision too. And we should have a global vision for the gospel. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. Father, thank you that it's not just us, us in our little small corner, but Father, thank you that the gospel is going out everywhere. We pray this morning for all those people 
across the world who have been taking the gospel to areas where people have never heard of Jesus. Uh, Father, people don't know the gospel. Father, pray that you'd be with them. Father, keep our vision as well, uh, not just fixed on the local, but on the global. Father, help us to be good mission support partners to those people that we partner with. Father, help us not to fall into that trap of just having a narrow vision and a narrow God. But Father, pray that we remember that you are the God of everywhere. And Father, we pray that uh, we'd be more and more that picture of what is coming for every tribe to the nation gathered around the throne. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.